You're listening to Hello Vancouver. I'm your host, Temple Lentz. Thanks for being here. On today's show, I'm speaking with Susan Armitage, Emerita Professor of History and Women's Studies at Washington State University, Pullman, where she taught and wrote about women in the American West for 30 years. Sue Armitage is the author of Shaping the Public Good, Women Making History in the Pacific Northwest. The book is available in bookstores and online now. And we talked a bit about her book and the history of the women who made the Pacific Northwest. Here's the interview. Thank you so much for joining me and talking about your book, Shaping the Public Good, Women Making History in the Pacific Northwest. Thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for inviting me. So uh, the reason I asked to have you on the show and talk with you was because I was actually, I was looking at books and things that had come out recently, and I saw that your book had been a uh, finalist for the Oregon Book Award, and I realized Mm -hmm. that I, I hadn't seen uh, many books about uh, women's, specifically women's history in the Pacific Northwest. So, that's right. That's why I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there, in, that's a bit of an exaggeration because there are biographies of, of some famous women um, and, and there is some academic um, literature that most people, <laughs> except other academics, wouldn't be interested in reading. Mm-hmm. Um but there isn't any general book, and that's why I wrote this book, because after all my years uh, at WSU, teaching at WSU in Pullman, I realized that even though I knew a lot of Pacific Northwest women's history, it wasn't getting through to a general public. It's a really interesting book and I really appreciated that it is incredibly it's academically dense but it isn't an academic book uh <laughs> yes that that was my idea yeah um, that it was possible to tell to to really tell a lot but to tell it in ways that didn't seem um, boring or off-putting talking about the history of women in general, as opposed to in specific, because we do have a lot of, well, there was this specific woman and she was a superhero, and then there was this specific woman, but it omits Mm -hmm. the real lives of 50% of the population who've been here doing hard work for years. Well, that's true. And even even aside from all of that, the trouble with the famous woman approach is that they don't, they don't, they seem always to be exceptions. And mm-hmm. so they don't, to the extent that most people have sort of a general sense of the way the Pacific Northwest um, was discovered and settled and developed from there, um, it's still a, a man's story because that's what all the textbooks say um, and most of the popular uh, stuff about the Pacific Northwest, you know, it's all about lumber and, tim- you know, it's all about heroic men. And there isn't any room for for um, for ordinary people, ordinary men, as well as ordinary women. And I think that something that is really wonderful about the book as well is that throughout you start with uh, with. Native people who were here well mm-hmm. before Europeans, mm-hmm. and also continue that through uh, throughout the book because I think something that a lot of history, at least like you know when I was in elementary school, that, that, that there is Native history, but that it sort of stops at at, uh, at European arrival. 
that's true. It's like all the natives disappear. Uh, and then they, if it, if the book comes up to the present, they pop up again because, of course, there's been the, the cultural revival and, and uh, the resurgence of the Pacific Northwest tribes. But it's that was one of my guiding principles. I wanted to have Native women, if I could, in every chapter. And mm-hmm. I think very clearly to give a sense that there's a continuing story there that we don't know a whole lot about often, but we know enough to know that Native people are, are have always been a, a significant part of the Pacific Northwest population, even though they may not be so much in numbers anymore, but their history is deep and long and matters a lot, particularly to the contemporary Native people. And when you start the book, you say in your uh, in the in the very beginning in the introduction that the book takes its inspiration from the story of She Who Watches, mm-hmm. which is uh, carved into a rock uh, that overlooks the Columbia, and that is very famous here, you know, locally in the Pacific Northwest. But for folks who don't know She Who Watches, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's why I began my introduction by uh, telling a, a version of the story about her. Um, first of all, she's a great big petroglyph on mm-hmm. on the, the banks of the Columbia River. It's not small. It's much larger than any of the other uh, petroglyphs in that part of the Columbia River. So her size alone is important. <laughs> but but the native story is that she was she watches the Gagala, um was. Uh, the chief of of the tribes that lived in her part of the Columbia River. Um, And she was a very successful and conscientious chief of all of her people. And she made sure the the story says that they built good houses and they led good lives. But then Coyote, the famous uh, native trickster figure, comes up the river and meets her and says, you know, um, pretty soon men are not going to let women be chiefs anymore. Um, and you won't be able to be the chief of your people. And she was very dismayed to hear that. And so um, in sympathy with her, trick, uh, Coyote in his inimitable way turns her into a petroglyph so that she will always be there looking after her people, looking over them, making sure that they're still doing the the right thing. And what I derive from all of that, from that story, which is a very sweet one if you think about it, um, is that whatever may have been true in the long ago past, it is a fact that, that uh, the, the American settlers in the Pacific Northwest uh, deprived women of leadership positions. They excluded women from politics. That was the the European and British tradition. Um, and what's been sort of unconsciously assumed from that is that because women didn't have any political rights, that they didn't do anything or they mm-hmm. didn't do anything that could be called political. And the argument of the book is that women have always been looking out for their communities, for their families and their communities, and making sure 
that they um, that they work well, just as she who watches did over her community, um, and that that's what that means among other things is that women have to be considered as uh, historical actors, political actors, um, even though they didn't have what we think of. Uh, uh, as political rights until the 19-teens when when women's suffrage finally passed. So that's one way of looking at it, the, an expansion of, of what politics really means. And it also acknowledges that women weren't just sort of sitting there on the sidelines while the men organized um, the Pacific Northwest, that they were an integral piece and that, that needs to be part of history, part of the part of the history that we know. Um, and so that's why I used her as my symbol. Besides which, I, if you've ever seen the the um, her, her 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 face mm-hmm. uh, with those great big eyes, I mean, it's a it's a compelling image. It really and, is. Yeah. Yeah, and I wanted. I wanted very much in the title to the book to acknowledge her, but the the uh, my press and I really couldn't agree on that, and so I had to give up that idea. But that's why she's first, because um, she really is, in my mind at least, a symbol for what women have have always done. And we're talking from, um, so I'm, you know, where Hello Vancouver and we're where Fort Vancouver is located, which uh-huh. um, while Vancouver itself didn't end up becoming one of the larger cities uh, where a lot of action happened, it was crucially important here in this early development, early European development of uh, of the Pacific Northwest. And in the chapter where you talk about the Métis and that early stage uh, when uh, the Hudson's Bay Company built Fort Vancouver, I thought that the status of women was interesting, and it was something that I think I'd sort of known, but it was interesting to have it pointed out so clearly. Yeah. Uh, that's why I that's why I made such a big deal of it in that chapter, because um, the Hudson's Bay policy was that no white women were allowed on. Um, the, no white woman could come from Britain and mm-hmm. join men who were, were part of the trade. So naturally, um, men turned to Indian women, um, and and I think the figure is that some more than half of all of the officers and traders associated with Fort Vancouver had Indian wives, and of course, in turn, had had mixed race children. Um, and it was a very flourishing society in which women had very definite rights and and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And I don't think most people know very much about this. They usually think uh, they usually think that the history of the Pacific Northwest begins with the Oregon Trail, and that's just simply really not true. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, and that I also I like that uh, in, you talk about how because all of this European settlement started coming from uh, from the west, from the coast, uh, that by the time this ragtag band of Lewis and Clark, who we hold up as the heroes who found the Pacific Northwest, 
by the time they got here, the Indians were sort of, yeah, <laughs> we've seen you guys before, and you're, you guys are pretty scrawny. <laughs> yeah, well, well, by the time they got here, there had been uh, both British and American ships uh, coming all the way either across the Atlantic or all the way from the East Coast um, to trade with the Indians because the Indians, the initial trade was um, uh, sea otter fur, which apparently, I don't think I've ever actually felt of sea otter fur, but apparently it's extremely warm and, and a lovely fur. Hmm. Um, and th- the ships came, of course, with the kinds of trade goods that they thought the Indians would like, which included, um, you know, the, the things that we sort of assume was most of the trade. I'm thinking beads and things like that. But the real trade was iron pots and knives and, and you know, things that they could really use and that were not ornamental really in any sense. But so these ships are loaded with stuff to tempt the Indians and here come poor Lewis and Clark, and they're what two boats with right. no trade goods at all. They, they, in fact, the journals say that as they were coming down the Columbia, they didn't even have anything they could trade with the with the Columbia River Indians to get salmon um, to eat. Mm-hmm. So they were <laughs> they were really kind of impoverished and. Uh, <laughs> And the Indians really didn't know what to think of them. So it's so ironic that, you know, especially in this part of the country, that Lewis and Clark are such a big deal. And um, and we celebrated their, what was it, their bicentennial so, so vigorously. Um, but... That's not what the local Indians thought. Yeah. And and in that time, in that sort of that key frontier period, the early 1800s, what did the role of a woman here in the Pacific Northwest look like? Oh, that was a, that was another part of, of, of the kinds of misunderstandings that grew up among them. Most of the, the Indian women who the, who the coastal, the coastal trade guys saw, or actually the fur trade in general, um, they dressed in what were very skimpy clothes in in European eyes, very mm-hmm. short skirts, uh, cedar capes to to uh, when it rained, which of course is most of the time along the coast, <laughs> um, and those funny conical hats that again were were for for water repellents more than anything else, and so. Um, these men, whether they came by ship or, or by uh, land, saw what looked to them like nearly naked women um, and made assumptions from that. I mean, no European woman of that time would dress like that. It would be, it really would be in that famous thing they used to say about men being uh uh, impelled to rape because women dressed so suggestively. Well, these women really did, but it was their, that's what they wore for the climate they were in. And the European men just assumed that it must mean that they were all being, um, uh, were eager to uh, have relationships with European men, which mm-hmm. of course was no, wasn't true. But that's, I mean, the, some of the early writings, 
especially again from the very earliest period where the contact is from these seagoing uh, uh, men who were on their way to collect fur and then take it to China and sell it. Um, they really they assumed that every woman was there for their taking, and it was so far from the truth that it, it's it's really quite shocking to read. And was there a way that the women uh, counteracted that? How how well, how did they cope with that? Well, most of them, I assume, simply let the left their settlements um, when a European ship showed up. Um, I mean, just like any community would, they shelter the most vulnerable members of the society. But but because a lot of those uh, coastal tribes, the women had really powerful roles. Usually senior women had mm-hmm. powerful roles as traders. And so the European men in another shock were faced with these very shrewd women who were not going to... Um, who were not going to settle for a few beads. I mean, they were sharp traders. Right. And that was another shock to what European men thought women should be like at that period. And then jumping forward a number of years, uh, also thinking about this book covers the entire Pacific Northwest, including, mm-hmm. uh, including BC. Uh, and there is so much that it, that it does cover thinking about another time and place that really hit here locally in the Portland, Vancouver area would have been like the Kaiser shipyards. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I, I think the figure is that there were more women employed in the Kaiser shipyards around Portland proportionately than anywhere else in the country. Wow. It was really, it was really, um, they were a really significant uh, part of the workforce. And I cannot remember at this very moment how much that really was but it was a large proportion of the of the um, of the workers and of course they worked 24 hours you know they were building these these ships at absolutely breakneck pace um and it, it was it must have been really quite a sight to be say for example on the night shift in one of those one of those yards during the war and there were a lot of women who who there must have been some who probably gave up and said, "This is just, you know, I can't do this. It's too hard. It's it, whatever." But the wages were so good, and the skills. I mean, the women. One of the most striking things about the oral histories that have been done in that period is the pride that women take in the skills that they've learned. Their welding skills. Um, there was one one woman I remember who um, went beyond welding. She uh, looked at one of the cranes that were used to bring you know to bring parts of the ship to the to the yard where they were working, and she said, "I think I want to be a crane operator," and insisted. Um, and that was unusual at the time. It really was not something that women had been accustomed to doing it, and they hadn't been in. They hadn't been involved in really heavy industry anywhere in the country before World War II. And then just the circumstances of needing women to do this work created this opportunity. Mm-hmm. But what mm-hmm. what happened when the war ended? <laughs> well, they stopped building ships because, of course, they didn't <laughs> need them anymore. So they had every reason in the world to fire all the women. Or they, didn't, they said, sorry, we're closing down this yard. Um 
that's it, go home. And they did say that. They said, go home. Um, and many women did because, of course, remember, there's hundreds of thousands of men coming back from overseas eager to be married, have families, you know, live a family life after all those years at war. But the women who didn't, and there were a significant number of them, um, found that, that all those skills that they had had learned in the war were suddenly completely worthless. In fact, mm -hmm. one woman who applied for a welder's job was told, no, I mean, it's not a job that a woman can hold. And even though you have skills, it's as though you haven't really worked at all because you haven't uh. done any women's jobs. You haven't been a secretary. You haven't been this or that or the other. Um, so it was a, in one respect, the World War II experience was a blip. Um, but I think it had really long lasting consequences because those women remembered what they did and they told their daughters and they made sure, or many of them made sure that their daughters could look beyond the very limited number of jobs that were um, considered women's jobs. Mm -hmm. And I do, I, I am convinced that it was that World War II experience that showed up eventually after those, you know, the, the, the stereotype of the 1950s where everybody lives in a little house and has a perfect little family and, and spends all their time uh, barbecuing in the backyard with their neighbors and, and everything is, is happy and peaceful. Well, lo and behold, it's the daughters of that generation who become the feminists of the of the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's no accident. They learned a lot from their mothers that have never, that was never written down. Most people don't even think about it. They just sort of say, oh yeah, my mother is, expected me, for example, to go on to college, or she expected me to want to have more than just a job. And so we're still living with that that consequence, the long-term consequence of World War II. You mentioned in the book that Seattle elected their first uh, woman mayor uh, relatively early, you know, it, like shortly after the turn of the century, in like the 20s. Bertha Landis in, in the 1920s was the first female mayor of Seattle. And what's really shocking is that she was the only one until this very latest election. There hasn't been any, um, there have, have not been any women mayors of Seattle in all of that intervening time, which is really surprising when you think about the fact that there have been, what, two or three women governors and the senators are women. So it's a, it's a very odd kind of thing. But Bertha Landis was a real was a real pathbreaker in the 1920s. But she only was mayor for one term because her male opponent accused her of running a petticoat government. And um, and actually, more seriously than that, she tried to close down the the bootleggers that were so active in the 1920s, which is when there was prohibition, you know, uh, and, yeah. uh, al alcohol was banned, uh, but there was lots of liquor in Seattle because 
there was no prohibition in Vancouver and uh, in Vancouver, BC, in, mm-hmm. in all of British Columbia. And so it was pretty easy to, to get liquor over the border. So she had a, a, I would say, what's that phrase? They use brief but spectacular uh, term as mayor. And, and in an ironic way, something like her, the backlash against her, happened to the first mayor of, of um, Portland, who was mayor just after World War II, and mm-hmm. she, who was called Dottie Do-Good because she, she again was a reformer. I am blanking on her last name. Um, but uh, she again was a reformer and tried to close down the uh, more lively parts of Portland, which the image of the time, which surely can't be right, was of Chinese gambling dens and all kinds of 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 things, not so much drugs as gambling and drinking, of course. Mm-hmm. But she only let she only lasted one term because she was such a such a reformer, and people didn't. Some parts of Portland society didn't want to be reformed. So uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So things have been better since then. Of course, have been. Portland has had several women mayors um, mm-hmm. and benefited from them, but the first as and I think uh, as these are women who are venturing into male politics. Same thing happened with the women who were first elected to uh, state legislatures um, after women got the vote, and they were they were treated pretty badly. The men just simply didn't want them there. And they uh, sort of froze them out of serious politics. So what an interesting position to be in where you actually managed to capture the the hearts and minds of the electorate and get elected. And the conditions have been created even in the 20s or the 60s to, to make this happen when so few elected women are elected. But then... Mm -hmm the power is taken away from you by your colleagues. And and if I, if I think about my own field of um, becoming a professor in the, in the uh, 1970s, when there were very, in the liberal arts at least, at least in history, there were very few women. And it was hard to feel like you really belonged when you were the only one. It was this mm-hmm. sort of classic token thing. Yeah, and that's that's changed since then. But it would there were a number of women who I knew across the country had really rough times in their early uh, careers as historians. I wish we <laughs> I wish we had double the time. Uh, but this has been fascinating. And once again, the book is shaping the public good: women making history in the Pacific Northwest. Susan Armitage, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. And that's our show. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Temple Lentz, and this has been Hello Vancouver. To find out more about Hello Vancouver, visit our website, hellovancouver.us, and be sure to check out our live stage shows in Vancouver, Washington, every other month. Hello Vancouver is produced by High Five Media.